racism is taught. Children aren't naturally prone to be prejudiced unless they've been exposed to it. And so I say that to say that we cannot just stop with our students, but that we have to work with adults. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. That was California's State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurmond, speaking emotionally and forcefully about the murder of George Floyd and searching for a way forward for the state and its schools following the tragedy. Let's hear a little bit more from Superintendent Thurmond. As I struggle to find my own voice as an elected official, to know how to support our communities. I found myself coming back to our work and the importance of education and how we must use education to have these courageous and sometimes difficult conversations about race, about racism, and about implicit bias. How we should recognize the intersectionality of education and racism and its impact on black and brown students who are more likely to be suspended and pushed out of school and pushed into the criminal justice system to be labeled, to be given an education that is not equal and is not appropriate and is not adequate. And so I think that now is our time to speak and to give voice to our action to address racism and implicit bias in education. You know, Lewis, that was a really powerful statement by Superintendent Thurman. And thinking, you know, one of the positive outcomes of the protests throughout the nation and in California this week is that people are looking around in their own communities to examine police practices, police arrest records, and policies of restraint. And one of the challenges is figuring out what can be done to address this issue. It's been something that people have been grappling with for decades. And most Californians probably aren't aware how police officers get trained. It turns out California's community colleges are integrally involved, and we decided to focus on that issue this week. To understand what the community colleges are doing and what they might do to reshape how police officers are trained, we're happy to have with us Eloy Oakley. He's Chancellor of the California Community Colleges. Welcome, Chancellor. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. So I just needed to get your overall reaction to this very difficult situation, already dealing with a pandemic, and now, as the Governor Newsom said, a pandemic upon a pandemic, the virus of racism. All your colleges are not actually in full session, so you are not having to deal with actually demonstrations and so on on your campuses. I guess that's one thing that the colleges don't have to deal with. Well, first of all, let me say that even though many of our campuses aren't in session, many, if not most, of our faculty, staff, and students are part of the demonstrations that you're seeing. And the reason is because they are in the communities that are most impacted by both the public health crisis and the crisis of confidence in our system and in the systemic racism that uh, many of our students, faculty, and staff are protesting against. Because the California Community Colleges are in some of our most under-resourced communities, they are very much part of this current dialogue, this current crisis, and this current unrest. Uh, So it is something that we have reflected on deeply. The situation that we saw unfold, uh, specifically with Mr. George Floyd and his brutal death, impacted us all very deeply because, you know, we are in those communities, our students are reflective of those communities, 
and we feel the pain that those communities feel. So it is something that has definitely added a layer of deep emotional distress on top of the public health crisis and now the economic crisis, which all clearly show that it is the same communities that continue to be hardest hit over and over again in any of these crises. You know, I think one of the things that's so challenging for everyone now is what can be done concretely. This issue is so woven into our culture for hundreds of years. Now, it turns out the community colleges are actually quite involved in training police. So you were actually in a position that perhaps you could have some impact. Could you just clarify, because I I know a lot of students take these administration of justice courses. Those aren't actually training programs as students may then go on into law enforcement. But then there are also these post-academies, police officer standards and training programs, which community colleges are also involved in. Right. So what do you think can be done in regards to that? Specifically to law enforcement and first responders, and let me begin by saying that uh, I, like many others, agree that by and large the majority of first responders and law enforcement are very much concerned about the communities that they police and serve. But having said that, we can do more to support the education of law enforcement. So first, several of our campuses do oversee and operate post-training academies police officers contract with the county of Los Angeles in the case of uh, Rio Hondo College or or many other counties and municipalities to support the training of police officers. And just to clarify, there are about 39 of those throughout the state, and it seems like about 14 or 15 are directly tied to community colleges, offered through the community college. That's right. That's right. And so we have a responsibility. While we do not create the post-certification training that's, that's handled by individuals directly connected to law enforcement who determine what the training should look like, we do have a role to play in the courses that lead to that post-training, in the way that we train our faculty uh, and our staff that interact with the individuals. So we do have a direct role. We also have a partnership with POST, and we can engage in that partnership to talk about how we think the curriculum can be examined, the curriculum can be adjusted to ensure that there is cultural competency, to ensure that there are techniques taught that our faculty feel would improve community policing. So in that partnership, we do have a role, as well as many of those officers before or after they become officers receive education in the California Community Colleges, and we should be thinking about how our curriculum supports the education of law enforcement individuals and helps them gain the skills they need to improve policing. What do you think needs to be more integrated then? What might be missing in the training? Part of the answer to that question really relies on us empowering the faculty in those programs to have this conversation who are responsible for the curriculum. But for my part, we need to ensure that there is cultural competence woven into our curriculum, that our curriculum reflects the views the backgrounds of the people that we serve in these communities. And so cultural competency means understanding what black communities 
feel about policing? What ways do they respond best to policing? What kind of information do our officers need to better understand the communities that they are serving to help them in their decision-making process? So those are issues of just understanding what implicit biases we all come in. That doesn't mean that we're saying that everyone's racist. I have implicit biases that I've inherited through my lifetime that I'm not aware of. And so helping law enforcement understand how what, how those implicit biases work and how we can blunt them would be just one important step to how we can improve the relationship between communities and law enforcement. You offer certificates and right. associate degrees, and many many of your students are law enforcement-related mm-hmm. yes. majors, right? You, you can have an effect in terms of the kinds of requisite courses that deal with history of race and, and other things in those courses that would affect dispatchers and many people who go into many different fields, right? Exactly. I think that's that's a, a great point. When we talk about law enforcement, it's not this monolith. People interact with our colleges and we have to take responsibility for what areas we can improve. And if one, think about how we hire, train, and support our own faculty that are interacting with uh, law enforcement professionals at all levels, ensuring that they are questioning the own biases that they've received somewhere along the line, and how do they help train and educate law enforcement individuals, as well as what kind of culture do we create in our colleges? Culture is such an important part of the educational experience because students absorb and respond to that culture, and so we need to ensure that we have a culture in our colleges, in our training academies that reflect the cultural competency that we want to see in our own law enforcement officers. We're speaking with Chancellor Eloy Oakley, Chancellor of California's 115 Community College System. You're suggesting that there needs to be more focus on cultural competence, on implicit biases, and so on. Now, I imagine this is not a new concept. I imagine that many of these programs already have that in those programs. I mean, do we actually know what is being taught in this regard? Well, what we know is that we've had many faculty in our system who have been voicing these concerns and voicing these solutions for quite some time. We've seen a growing body of research that suggests that some of these solutions are what's needed in higher education. But to be honest, we have lacked the will to give them the force that they need in order for them to really take hold in our system. And I think that's, you know, to, to cut through all of the, um, uh, the research and the, the programs that we've just described, it comes down to will. And what we're trying to do is, is to use this moment to generate the will to be uncomfortable, to talk about race and ethnicity, and to actually put in motion changes that will improve the outcomes of students of color, uh, as well as faculty, staff, and the communities that we serve. How do you translate that message to the presidents and the boards of 115 community colleges? Well, first, we have to be very honest and very blunt about what we're talking about. We have to empower voices on campuses, particularly voices of uh, minority faculty, who have lived these experiences. We have to be honest about the data. The data clearly shows that um, more than 70% of our faculty are white. 
That's not an indictment of our faculty. That's an indictment of our system. That's an indictment of our hiring processes. And so we have to be honest about that. And we can only begin to move forward when we have an honest discussion about where we're at and what needs to change. And then we need to follow through with action, action that's going to require boards of trustees to set clear guidelines and timelines and a board of governors that sets clear expectations and regulations that ensure that we're moving forward. But at the end of the day, this is about empowerment, not compliance. Compliance has not worked in this country or in our system for our whole history, and compliance is not going to get us to improve the the state of Black and African American students. What is your sense as to the receptivity of law enforcement agencies to not focusing for the first time, but focusing more intensively on these issues? Because I imagine there's a cultural competence unit in probably every one of these programs already. Well, I do think that, as, as we've heard from police chiefs throughout the country, there is this moment of opportunity. I lived through the Rodney King situation, and, and before that, with Chief Gates and the LAPD, I have never heard so many police chiefs put a voice to what needs to change than I hear right now. That's a good sign. And so working with our chiefs in our cities and our counties, I think we have an opportunity. The second thing I'd say is that we make a choice. We make a choice to partner with cities and counties. And if we don't feel that the cities and counties reflect the values of the California Community Colleges, then we should consider ending that relationship, if nothing more than to send a clear signal that if things are not going to change, then we cannot remain complicit in watching what happens in our community. So we have to make choices, and I think those choices will influence outcomes. And whether we're partnering with cities and municipalities on training officers or whether we're partnering and securing security services from sheriff departments or police departments, we make choices. And we have to question those choices and make sure that they align with our values. We've been talking with Chancellor Eloy Oakley from the California Community Colleges. Tough times, difficult issues. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today and uh, obviously look forward to staying in touch with you in the weeks and months ahead. Well, thank you to both of you and to, to the entire team there at EdTours. Thanks. You know, John, one of the things that moved me about Oakley's comments is that it just underscored how much California's public colleges and universities are doing. There's so much that they're doing that we don't really even know about and making such essential contributions to the state. Yeah, and therefore, you know, it it also leads to the fact that they're in a position to make a difference and make a change as well. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And I have to say, I was intrigued by Chancellor Oakley's, um, I won't call it a threat, but statement that if law enforcement is not receptive to really moving forward in this area, that the community colleges might have to sever their relationships with these post-academies. Yeah, I'm not sure how much leverage he has, but he certainly has passion on this issue and is going to be very forceful, for sure. 
Talking about being passionate and forceful, I think one of the things that also has happened in the last week to 10 days is that young people have turned out in impressive numbers at protests around the country. And I think this could be a defining moment for a new generation that will be shaped by not only this pandemic, but also to the call to end police violence and to promote racial justice. You know, this does seem a time when youth leadership is more important than ever. And there's a need to reach out to students to hear what they're saying, expand their community involvement in organizations and the institutions that affect their lives. And one such opportunity is coming up. The nonprofit organization Ed 100, founded by our friend Jeff Camp, will be training student leaders this summer in its first online summer academy for California student leaders. I spoke recently with a student member of California State Board of Education who will moderate the week-long program in July. Brenna Pangalinen and I talked not only about the program, but her experience representing all young people in the State Board of Education, which determines the policies that affect 6 million students in California. So before I want to talk to you about the academy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your experience as a state board member and a voting state board member, one of 11. How, how was your experience? What did you learn about education policy from your year on the board? So I have definitely learned a lot and I had to learn very quickly. It was a shock to take a position where you're considered an equal, really, to the other board members. And you're a student. You know, these people have had years and years of experience in education and you have to learn very quickly what's been going on. So um, in terms of education policy and just how things work at the state board, I think I learned how much of a process it is. And I stepped into work and policy that had been in the works for a majority of my lifetime. And, you know, we'd made it to a point where we're really, there's a lot of work going on, but there is a lot of history. And that takes a lot of learning. And it took a lot of time on my part to make sure that I was educated about what was going on and, and how I can make an informed decision. Because like you said, my vote, my vote does count. So was there an instance where you felt that your voice mattered and that you persuaded a vote? I was lucky enough. I think that I walked into a really good board dynamic and Every point that every board member makes, I think, is really valued, and I appreciate that. And it did take some agency on my part just to, you have to build the confidence to really speak up in these meetings. And that's something that I think a lot of student leaders struggle with. But, you know, I just try and speak as much as I can and provide student input as much as I can. And I do think that it is taken into account in in all of in all of our discussions and our opinions differ, then we don't just leave it at that. We make sure that we talk about it and get to a point where we feel comfortable to vote. What was your most difficult decision that you made and and how did you come to it? I think some of the most difficult discussions and agenda items are obviously the charter school hearings. And there's always a lot of emotion that comes along with those because it's not just, you know, what you read on a paper. It's students coming in and talking about their experiences. You know, school schools are communities and it can be difficult when you have to look at something from a perspective uh, on the state board, but then also understanding that this is a community that you're talking about. So you've talked about the importance of student voice. So mm-hmm. Did you see yourself as representing you as a student or did you represent all students in, in California? And, and that must be difficult given how diverse the student body is in the state. Yeah, that's definitely something you have to keep in mind. And I think it'd be silly to say that 
you know, I could represent every single perspective in the state of California, but you have to try. And that's the position that this is. You have to try your best. And every time you enter that boardroom or you are, you know, working on something state board related, you have to practice a new level of empathy. And, you know, if the discussion is about English learners, you have to put yourself in the shoes of English learners. And, you know, even though I have an opinion, my opinion is not the end-all be-all because I'm representing all students. Well, you've been a, a good model for your peers, and, and that's why they chose you for moderator of this upcoming event. So tell us, what is the Academy? When is it? And what's the purpose? Uh, coming up, there will be the Ed 100 Summer Academy, and it's really an opportunity for student leaders to come together from each high school and learn about our education system and how they can make a difference in it. And, you know, something interesting is, you know, before it was really not feasible to bring this many students together into one conference, just because everybody coming together in person, there's a lot of costs involved, liabilities, but with technology now, it's more possible to bring students together virtually. So when is it again? July 20th, through 23rd. What will students learn by going to the academy? Yes, there's a lot of amazing things that they can learn. We're going to have some amazing guest speakers and it's really going to be a working meeting where we go over education policy, what we think that students should understand in order to be effective leaders and and really have meaningful discussions in terms of student leadership. And it'll be a working meeting where students are going to break up into groups and be able to discuss some of the information that we give them because the education system is extremely complex and it's going to take collaboration and communication to make sure that students are understanding the information that we're giving them. But hopefully it's a conference that students can feel really empowered and bring this knowledge back to their communities and hopefully share it with other students. Well, who should apply? Really, any student leaders should apply, whether you are one or are looking into being one. There's so many leadership positions for students on their school site, on English language advisory councils, on parent-teacher boards. There's so many opportunities for students to be leaders, and all of them should be informed about how California education system works. Well, listen, we'll see you there. Thanks for uh, joining us today. We've been speaking with Brenna Pangalinen, and she is finishing her term as student board member of the California State Board of Education. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. One of the encouraging things about the last few weeks has been the emergence, at least in the public eye, of some really, really impressive leaders of all ages, people I had not heard about, and uh, Brenda certainly sounds like one of those. And by the way, you can continue to register for the Youth Leadership Academy that Ed100 is organizing at the organization's website, ed100.org. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>